Paramedic 61, District 6. Stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it. Once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I want to thank everybody for joining us. And, uh, you know, I got to say, man, it's been a really great week. And, you know, now it's time to uh, discuss the great things that are happening with inside our career field. But before we go any further, here's that guy, fresh off the U.S. tour, <laughs> Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man. I'm finally uh, glad to be home sleeping in my own bed or more properly sleeping in a station bed for the next week. That's right. So, uh, I mean, actually, you hit both coasts. You were out there yeah. in Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. And then actually out there with the folks in San Diego, how was the trips? Good. That's right. I, I traversed the continent. It was a great trip. The uh, uh, spent uh, a couple of days at the MSAC conference in San Diego. Uh, that's their EMS administrators and planners conference, and and gave a little inspirational talk there, and and listened to some good stuff about uh, system planning and design and research and, and such. And great great group of folks out at uh, at MSAC, and the the venue is wonderful. The Coronado. Uh, the Lowe's Resort on, on Coronado Bay, um, and then uh, trekked to the other coast to uh, the Connecticut EMS Expo, is, which has really undergone a renaissance in the last couple of years. They, they've totally turned this conference around um, where it is that they had uh, close to a thousand uh, uh, people this year, which which almost triples their their uh, their attendance in previous years. So, and uh, great venue at the Mohegan Sun and. and uh, my, uh, my talks were well received, man. Yeah, I mean, one of the I things like that it. one of the things you just said, which was kind of interesting, is you said that you went out there and you were kind of inspirational. How come? Mm-hmm. How come you're not that way here? But uh, anyway, I digress. Let's <laughs> well, go ahead and stop. You just can't. You just can't be inspired. Oh, is that what it is? It's me. <laughs> so it's it. always me. Let's see. It's yeah. always you. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and do some news. Uh, go ahead and hit us with our first story. What do you got? I want to give a shout out to Candy Hall Stowe uh, Rescue in uh, Stowe, Vermont. She is a 40-year veteran of EMS, a Vermont advanced EMT and an RN, uh, 27 years an ICU nurse. She's still going strong. Uh, EMS One columnist Mike Rubin's uh, EMS Pioneer series. We get to to highlight a a long-term EMS uh, person and, and share their stories from a time when most of the current workforce of EMS is totally unfamiliar with. Uh, and, and get their stories on the record uh, while they're still with us. And uh, just want to give a shout out to Candy uh, and, and tell her rock on. Keep on keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah, keep on keeping on. I mean, there was this one thing on Facebook where there was a 90-year-old woman who uh, they gave props to on the, her last day as, as an ER nurse. And, and, you know, we see those folks who, are, who made a career out of EMS. And, uh, you know, you said it, I think, really poignantly that there is such a strong history in EMS from from where we developed from to where we are today, not even 50 years old. And we're, we're losing track of those stories. We're losing mm-hmm. track of the days of, you know, uh, ambulances coming out of the mortuaries. And we're losing the track of the days of when this EMS service merged with that EMS service. And, yeah. and, and that's something that 50 years from now, uh, who's going to remember those things? So I really kind of like your thought of, 
you know, kind of videotaping or recording those those history, um, that history for posterity. And, and, you know, it's funny because I just had this conversation with a, a friend of mine whose mm-hmm. grand, great-grandmother is now 90 years old. And, uh, you know, he, they made the comment of they don't know how much longer they're going to be around. And I said, well, get a video camera and sit down with them and, and talk yeah. about the stories of growing up and how did the so, family evolve. And, you know, we don't do that well enough. So I applaud you for that uh, for that thought. Yeah, we, you know, as a profession, it's hard to know where we're going unless we know where we've been. And, you know, there are a lot of, uh, they call them EMS dinosaurs, but I don't, I don't uh, agree with the term dinosaur. Uh, dinosaurs died out because they refused to evolve. Uh, and, and there are plenty of people out there with, with a wealth of experience that we can learn from uh, that have evolved uh, to, in the changing healthcare environment, and, and I applaud them for doing that. Yeah, well, my story is uh, kind of the news of the weird. Uh, it goes out to Honolulu, Hawaii, and, and I've just been kind of fixated on this story since it popped up. And this was a man impaled, uh, killed by a swordfish bill. And, uh, you know, guy's out fishing and catches a swordfish, subdue this fish, which was about three foot long, uh, had a bill about three foot, and uh, stabbed him in the upper torso. And and, you know, one of the things that really got me about this call is, as I was thinking, how, how do you handle a call like this if this is you responding to it? But secondly, it's those little things that we do, you know, fishing or whatever it is, that this could be the last day that, that we're taking a breath because of the actions that we come across. Yeah. And, and I don't know that we fully accept that or we're fully, uh, you know, prepared for that. But so those two things really hit me kind of hard in the sense of, you know, we can be out fishing and just pull something in our boat that kills us. Number two is, as a paramedic, how do you wind up taking care of somebody like this, or even if there's any uh, opportunity to take care of them at all? You say it's it's news of the weird, but, you know, I, I've seen stories like this before, actually. I remember as a kid reading in, in Outdoor Life, uh, one of those uh, that had a column called This This Happened to Me, and a guy was... Uh, speared by a much larger swordfish uh fighting one the, the fish jumped into the boat with him this is a um in in your story the the guy actually jumped in the water to spear the fish and, and got nailed um but in this case the guy was fighting the fish on conventional rod and tackle and jumped in the boat and speared him through the the foot what i find interesting is is you know from a medical standpoint how do you how do you remove the bill of a swordfish from someone those things are barbed uh, you can't just pull them out um, in the right. same way, you know, that they, they're like a fish hook uh, and they got barbs on both sides. It's not something you can, you can just pull out without doing a great deal of tissue damage. Sure. But uh, yeah, you know, killed by a swordfish that, that, you know, you never know when it's going to be a swordfish or a, a killer ostrich or, or whatever that takes your life. Right. Live each day to the fullest. Uh, tomorrow you may be killed by a swordfish. A killer ostrich. Is that what you said? Yeah, okay. yeah. I've told you that story. I, I worked a call where an ostrich killed two people. No, I don't think you told me that story. Oh, brother. Well, we'll have to share. We'll, we'll have to have a so there. So there I was episode on inside. Well, you end. can't just go. I mean, go ahead and give us the ostrich killing story. Uh, to make a long story short, because this is an entertaining tale, an ostrich actually killed two people uh, when I was a, a fairly new paramedic. I, I'd been a paramedic for three or four years, and. Uh, Ostrich turned on an elderly couple, a big rooster breeder ostrich, you know, seven plus feet tall and 250 to 300 pounds, uh, jumped on this elderly couple and and killed them. And when I say killed them, I don't mean just just minor stuff. This looked like a slasher movie. 
this was this was really R-rated gore. The woman was the man was dead, and the woman uh, was dead, but did not realize it yet. Uh, and we tried to stabilize her and got her to the hospital. But the funny the punchline to the whole tale is is when I'm giving report to the ER physician at the little rural hospital in South Arkansas where we dropped the patient off. I said, you know, all right, this is a uh, ostrich attack, one fatality on scene. This woman's got an avulsed left breast, and she was decorated posturing on scene with vital signs such and such, and she got a 7.5 tube, 21 centimeters at the lip line, and and uh, been ventilated with 100% oxygen. She's had three liters of fluid. Now she's totally flaccid, and yada, yada, yada. And while I'm giving him report, he's looking over his glasses, inspecting this woman's wounds, and she's got defensive wounds all over her arms and hands. And he says, I don't know. This just doesn't look like any ostrich attack I've ever seen. That is funny. (laughs) And he didn't realize, he didn't get why the entire trauma team started laughing at him. You know, oh, really? How many ostrich attacks have you seen? Um, but yeah, yeah they're, that's they're my, vicious little animals, man. I mean, they're uh, it. They can when, when they get you down and get those feet into you. It is it is pretty uh, pretty rough what they can do. So anywho, that's uh, could be a could be a swordfish or a, a killer ostrich at any moment. Uh, live life to the fullest, folks. You never know when it's going to end. That's right. Well, I, I I am the better for that story, so I do yeah. appreciate it. All right, my next story comes from Salt Lake City. It's an AP uh, Associated Press story out of uh, Salt Lake City where. 50 people from a Salt Lake City homeless shelter were taken to hospitals for suspected food poisoning. Uh, fire department spokesman said that EMTs responded to the St. Vincent de Paul shelter uh, on Sunday night for uh, multiple people vomiting. They don't know why the, uh, the, uh, the patients were, uh, were sick and, and what was the source of the, uh, the potential food poisoning. But uh, EMS had to had, had a, a, what it was effectively a mass casualty incident there. Um, I think it's a testament that, uh, you know, the, the next multi-patient scene or, or mass casualty incident uh, could be right around the corner, and you never know from whence it's going to uh, arise. Wouldn't you say, Chris? Yeah, and, and, you know, there's always a flip of the coin, and, and I think that the bait is mass casualty versus mass patient, and, you know, when you're dealing with medical calls versus trauma calls. But regardless of that, you know, you, you really need to be able to have a process in place because, I mean, you don't even know. I mean, uh, you know, when's the last time that you, you were called for a, you know, a four-car MVA that had uh, three patients in each car? And you really need to have a definitive process of how you're mm-hmm. going about you know, approaching those calls. And, you know, it it seems like the folks up there in Utah did a really great job of recognizing the challenge and and then dealing with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that's a great thing that we do here. You know, it seems that, uh, you know, we talk about mass casualty incidents. We talk about our multiple patient scenes. But are we really prepared to handle them when they happen? And and it seems that we have to revert back to when the last time was. But is this something that we probably need to do a better job of training on, Kelly? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. You know, and, and I, I, I don't necessarily agree with your with your distinction between mass trauma and, and mass uh, mass casualty. I think you're dealing uh, with them stuff. differently. I think you're dealing well, with them differently. I, I think we I think we would in certain in certain instances. But at first blush, you can look at this story and say, oh well, you know, it's fifty people with food poisoning. They got GI distress and they're vomiting and you know and squirting from multiple orifices. But you're also dealing with a homeless shelter. Uh, and who are your typical uh, residents of a homeless shelter? There are people with well, homeless medical. people, homeless people. 
multiple medical problems, substance abuse issues, psychiatric issues, all of those are confounding things that may make your, your uh, treatment and assessment of these patients a, a good deal more challenging than you may at first appreciate. So I think it's, it's, we can look at it and say, oh, there were you know, 50 plus people uh, with, with uh, food poisoning, but figuring out uh, what the source was or, or dealing with their, with their individual response to the, to the uh, illness uh, could be a, a good deal more problematic than we, than we first appreciate. But that brings us to our guest table segment. We've got a couple guys who participated in a mass casualty incident of their own uh, and wrote it up for EMS1.com, did a poster presentation on it. So let's bring them in, Rafi Udine and Ethan King. Both of them uh, students at Charles Sturt University in Australia are here on the show today to tell us about a, a mass casualty exercise and uh, and a poster presentation they're doing and, and writing up for EMS1. Rafi, Ethan, welcome to the show. Hi, how you Hi. doing? You know, I mean, Australia, we talk about all the time, guys, that we're an international show. And, mm -hmm. you know, I said it before we started recording. Any further that you travel to Australia, you actually start coming back to the United States. So I want to thank you guys <laughs> for joining us in, in the midst of winter down there in Australia. And uh, so you guys are both college students. Uh, tell us a little bit about the program, uh, how much longer you guys have to go. Yeah, so in, in Australia, we're, we're moving towards like a, a degree-based pathway for a paramedic education. And so the standard is a three-year bachelor's degree in what we call clinical practice paramedics. And from there, um, that basically gives us the tools from which we can apply to different ambulance services and hopefully get a job. So it's a three-year degree with um, includes everything, theoretical, practical, um, law and ethics, uh, all sorts of different, pretty much try and cover all the academic and theoretical components that a paramedic would need, as well as giving us the practical tools. But yeah, it's a three-year degree, and we're in the third year of our degree, so we've only got six months left, and then we, we finish and graduate. That's exciting, no, and, and uh, as you get close to the graduation, uh, you know, that's that's the exciting part of it. Yeah, and yet another, yet another example of, of how paramedics in other countries are educated far better than our own. Yeah, that's one of the things that we talk about up here, guys, is uh, you can find paramedic programs that are, you know, less than a year long, and that becomes part of the challenge. But let's go ahead and talk about why you guys are here, and, and Ethan, maybe I can start with you. So you guys have now gotten to a point where you submitted an article to EMS1 where you guys were involved in a, a scenario of counterterrorism, and uh, it, it moved into an article, it moved into a poster presentation why don't you give us just a little bit of background about the, the situation that got you there and what made you say, we've got to talk about this to everybody. Um, so, yeah, we went down to a um, army barracks training facility and we worked with the New South Wales uh, police force, counterterrorism police force, uh, myself, Rafi, and another few other students. And we basically uh, participated in a mass casualty um, incident and we ran a fair few scenarios where we would go and treat anybody that was injured. Um, and, yeah, from that, we um, after each uh, one of these cases where we um, individually took lead in these roles, we uh, debriefed on this. And um, the lecturer that actually took us down there um, thought that his debriefing um, after each scenario wasn't up to standard. So from this, um, it came the idea to develop a poster presentation on uh, debriefing itself. So your your poster presentation is, is actually on the the after action debriefing uh, and and its importance in the success of the exercise. Is that right? 
Yeah, so it's all about that um, learning actually comes from debriefing, not so much as in the actual participation in the scenarios themselves. Yes, there is learning involved in the scenarios, but where the greater um, learning comes from is a debriefing process after. Yeah, yeah, you have to be able to synthesize the lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about that, I mean, you, you know, so if we think about that whole process, you would think that the, the learning or you would think that the, the lessons come from actually whether your success or whether your failure during the incident. How did you come to the opportunity to learn more came in that debriefing more than actually working within the event? Um, I think a lot of it was from how we, when we're going through the event, we're only thinking, or I know for me especially, you're only thinking on one kind of a track in a lot of ways. And I think actually being in the, the simulation or the scenario really uh, it gives you a little bit of tunnel vision about your whole situational awareness, especially in an MCI when you've got over 70 patients and you're coordinating with you know, three or four different agencies at the same time. I think with the debriefing and what, what we learn, especially from an MCI scenario and the debriefing there is that from talking to everyone and getting all their perspectives, it just opens up um, the whole situation so much more. I mean, you, you understand what, other paramedics were seeing, like what other treating officers were seeing compared to you who were on the, the other side of the, the scenario. And um, I think from that, we kind of realized that, you know, debriefing is, is, is extremely important in getting out all those different points and kind of combining different perspectives as well so that everyone can share knowledge about what they, they felt, what they saw during the, the simulation. So, Rafi, I have a question for you. How, how far out do you recommend... After the conclusion of the exercise, do you hold a debriefing? Uh, I, I know that immediately after, you know, after the, the conclusion of an exercise, uh, all the lessons and, and, and all the information is still yet to be gathered. Uh, what's an appropriate time to, to uh, gather all that before we put it all together in a debriefing and, and critique the exercise? I think it really, that really depends on the type of exercise you're running. Mm -hmm. um, for for a big MCI, you, you want to look at least probably, I'll even say the next day, and you want to devote mm -hmm. a good couple of hours to it. You know, if you're running with, like I said, multiple agencies, lots of patients, then definitely mm -hmm. yeah, you're, going to, you're going to want to wait at least the next day so people can sleep on, on what they've seen and kind of um, quantify what they've seen in their own minds so they can verbalize their emotions and things like that. But um, I think because in a university setting, especially, we focus on small, small simulations with one patient, two practitioners, mm -hmm. maybe four practitioners. Simulations running 20 minutes to half an hour at most. So it's yeah. a little bit of a different situation. I mean, we run at, at university or at college, we run, we run hot debriefs. So, you know, as soon as the scenario ends or the simulation ends, the treating crew will pack up their equipment and then everyone will sit down and then we'll go from there and have a quick kind of five to ten, ten minute debrief, I guess. So I think it really does depend on the exercise conducting and how complex. I think the, the bigger and the more complex the exercise, the longer you have to wait before you can conduct an effective debrief, just so people have that time to process that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that brings up a great point. Nathan, let, let me go ahead and ask you this then. For the people out there that have never gone through this process, and, and you guys kind of learned it as, as you went along, how do you suggest or how do you recommend, you know, paramedic students uh, in the same situation here in the States go through that debrief uh, to get the most out of what they've just went through? Uh, you've got to have a structure to your debrief. Like anything, there's got to be a structure. You know, um, ambulance services have protocols and we've developed a, um, basically a protocol or structure to follow for debriefing. Um, and it's just all about um, learning how to learn, I suppose you could say. Um, so yeah, when 
um, we have these hot debriefs straight after um, these small little simulations. It starts off with the student talking about how they did, you know, opposed to the facilitator of the scenario or simulation giving their thoughts. So that way the student can come up with their own um, conception of what happened, you know, in this scenario. So basically how you guys uh, will want to structure it is up to you. But uh, And clinical reasoning is the one, you know, that what I was just mentioned is basically straight after the uh, scenario finishes, the student talks about the clinical reasoning, so what they did and why, so why they treated the patient in a particular way, you know, and uh, why they think that was beneficial to the treatment of that patient. Yeah, that's very interesting. Hmm. You know, the, I, one of the things I find really intriguing about uh, the opportunity you guys had was, you know, the, your school sent six students. Am I correct to uh, to participate in this in this exercise? How many patients did you uh, did you have in the exercise? It was about seventy or eighty. At our office. 70, 70 or eighty students. You know, Chris, how many? How many? Uh, how much EMS education? Or, or incorporates MCI training into its initial education program. Most of the simulations our students run are, are what, you know, one, maybe two or three patients uh, in, a, in a classroom setting, or if we're nice, we have a, a skills lab or something, but rarely do students uh, get to participate as a student right. uh, in, in an exercise of this magnitude. And I think that one of the things that they had going for them, and Ethan, I'll, I'll jump to you when we, when we talk about this, was you guys had the opportunity to partner with, you know, the counterterrorism unit that we're kind of doing. I mean, just like uh, anywhere in the world, you know, we have to now prepare for the inevitable of when, uh, you know, terrorism strikes our shores and, and how we're going to deal with that. I mean, did, did, did those guys come to you? Did you guys go to them? How instrumental was that relationship that allowed you now to get to the point of saying, uh, we're going to develop this process after the fact? Yeah, um, well, we have to say a massive thank you to the lecturer that took us down there, so Sandy Macquarie and um, also Judith Dolman that actually instigated this. So this didn't come from us. This came from um, them organizing it with the New South Wales Police Counterterrorism Force um, and taking the students down, um, which was luckily us and a few others. Um, but, yeah, in saying that, it doesn't have to be um, done that way. Each year, um, the first-year students at um, Charles Sturt University get an opportunity to perform in a mass casualty simulation um, set up at the university itself with um, volunteers, um, student volunteers and anybody else that wants to come along. You know, so there's op other opportunities as well, not just um, the New South Wales Police Force. But um, in saying that, it is an amazing opportunity to work with these uh, people mm -hmm. and see how they perform and the professionalism that they bring to the table. It um, opens up your mind to a new way of treating and um, increases your situational situational awareness um, paramount more than it was before. Yeah. You know, Ethan, uh, follow-up question for me. Um, you know, you, you mentioned in your in your write-up uh, that this was, uh, you know, a, a exercise with the uh, New South Wales Counterterrorism Unit and the Australian Army Special Forces. And you guys had explosions and gunshot wounds and gas attacks and, and all that thing with smoke grenades and, and blank rounds and stuff being used. How... How applicable are the lessons you learned to to the broader context of EMS? This was obviously a, a military exercise. The the stuff you observed and learned, how applicable is that to to your everyday practice as paramedics? Uh, well, um, we've been out on placement for one month with the New South mm -hmm. Wales Ambulance. But with the um, scenarios itself, it's amazing how much more at university, it's amazing how much more aware you are of the, um, the dangers 
um, you know, that come with it. As whereas university, we say, uh, you know, we've got to check for danger. But now after this mass casualty simulation we did, it's just amazing how much more it's in the forefront of your brain thinking about these kind mm-hmm. of things. And just you, it allows you not to uh, become flustered by a little uh, one mm-hmm. patient simulation. You just are so much more in control of the situation because you've dealt with something that's catastrophically more in depth than, you know, this one patient at university. And as far as placement goes with the um, New South Wales Ambulance, you um, you just have a lot more respect for the dangers that you have to look out for and the way that they treat. You can um, definitely bring what we learn from the mass casualty mm-hmm. incident to the placement and it just um, kind of all starts to connect the dots, I suppose. Yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, Chris and I have talked about this in the past and this is something you'll probably... Uh, appreciate uh, once you get in the field and, and start working with uh, with whatever agency you get on with is that uh, uh, for example the Boston EMS Boston Marathon bombing last year Boston EMS handled that so well is because they they handle uh, or they train large event uh, medicine as a MCI event that's the protocol they use uh, in dealing with uh, in, in dealing with events because it's all ultimately it's all about communication and resource allocation and that sort of thing and uh, those those skill sets are applicable across the uh, across the spectrum so you're, you're probably going to find that in, a, uh, in years years in the future that uh, this is this was a valuable thing no matter whether the the bullets and the bombs are going off uh, or not uh, it's going to be useful useful uh, addition to your skill set yeah is there a question in that <laughs> you know no, this, you're going to find a lot of things just, there's not a lot of questions and yeah I was just pontificating. That's me. You know, one of the things I find interesting now as I listen to as I listen to Kelly pontificate was there's not a lot of difference between the Australian accent and Kelly's Louisiana accent. Oh, so, yeah, so right. that was pretty interesting. But guys, you know, for the sake of time, we're getting up there, and and you know, I think what you guys did was was amazing, and, and it just goes to show that uh, as uh, you guys identified an issue, you came up with something. And and one of the things that I would like to do, Kelly, I, I think I could speak for you here is mm-hmm. I'd like to have you guys come back on the show uh, for another episode and I would like to talk about the educational process that you guys go through over three years and uh, as I mentioned you know the you find that the, the longest uh, paramedic course that you'll find in the states is about two years long and uh, you guys are getting a bachelor's degree out of the deal and I would really like to kind of uh, talk about the differences between the programs because here in the states uh, we know that you guys uh, down in Australia um, are probably at the top of the paramedic game uh, when you come out of school, and uh, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of chat about that. I would love to hear that too. I would love to come back yeah. onto the show and do that. Yeah, thank you for having us for starters. So you yeah. guys are now the president of the Inside EMS Fan Club for Australia. <laughs> so you guys now have to take the word of Chris and Kelly and bring it out down there to all those uh, folks in Australia. All right, Chris and Kelly, got it. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you guys real soon. Thanks for coming to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Kelly, I mean, that was pretty interesting, man. And, uh, you know, it just goes to show that regardless of where you are in the world, that uh, paramedicine has a lot of crossover. And uh, with Mm -hmm. that, I think, uh, you know, give me your final thoughts and get us up on out of here. It it proves a point that that no matter where you are in the the world, uh, EMS is EMS. And uh, it, it's nice to hear uh, the perspective of, of 
people from from other countries, and I think these guys got a great opportunity to learn a little bit about EMS and, and about uh, mass casualty incidents and and how those things and those lessons will will pay dividends in the future for them. Uh, it was great talking to them about it. But that's my opinion, and I'm through pontificating. We'd like to hear what you think. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to log on to iTunes and rate our show for us. We appreciate you, uh, those of you who have done so in the past, and the rest of you get to get to clicking. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS, and we'll catch you guys next week.